Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. We observe today not a victory of party, but a celebration of freedom. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. The Human Zoo, where they don't hide away the sick animals. Dangerous mid-morning debate with the great dictator. The independent republic of Mike Graham. Stand to attention when I'm talking to you! On Talk Radio. Dismiss! Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We are, of course, live streaming it right now from the studio, not just uh, listening to you on Talk Radio, are you? You can now be watching us as well on YouTube, watching us on Facebook, watching us on Twitter as well. The Duke and Duchess of Netflix, the sadness of Prince Harry, a billion-dollar battle and a peace deal between the princes, William and Harry. This morning, you can take your pick of the royal headlines and take whatever you like out of each of them. Who can deny that when the news came through on Saturday night that Her Majesty the Queen had sorted out the prince and princess of Wokedom, that you didn't punch the air and cheer loudly from the rooftops. Make no mistake, whatever anyone's told you, this is an utter humiliation for Meghan and Harry because they have had the royal rug pulled from underneath them, they've been sent packing without so much as a buy your leave, and the delicious irony of the Queen praising Meghan Markle leaves her nowhere to go either, apart from Canada, of course, where they don't really want her. I mean, after all, how on earth is Meghan Markle now going to give an interview to Oprah Winfrey or anybody else in America and say how badly she's been treated? The Queen has been delightful about her. The Queen has been charming. The Queen has been decisive. And the Queen has been everything we know her to be, filled with dignity and filled with absolute and utter assurity that she's doing the right thing. We'll be talking to Royal Author Robert Jobson this morning about why Harry is sad, why Meghan is mad, and why moving to Canada is bad. Not just for the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, but for the whole royal family. Personally, I can't wait for him to leave. I'll even drive him to the airport. 0344 499 1000. Coming up, we'll be asking why everyone wants to move the House of Lords up north. Surely they'd be better off just abolishing it, wouldn't they? If only to stop John Burko moving in. And we'll be discussing the latest HS2 news. Yes, it is actually going to cost, as we predicted, £106 billion. And they haven't laid a single foot or yard of track yet. 0344 499 1000. And of course there's some good news as well. We'll be telling you how to make yourself happy. You're listening to me and watching me, Mike Graham, right here 
on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, there are many things that you can thank the Queen for. There are many things that you can be thankful for when it comes to the Queen. But I have to say, on Saturday night, and I'm going to find out from Robert Jobs in a moment if this is true, when the, the Buckingham Palace decided to issue the news statement that basically a deal had been struck with Meghan and Harry for them to remove the HRH titles, to move off to Canada, to have no further part in any royal family duties and to no longer uh, be part of the military organisations, to no longer have any role whatsoever at the heart of the royal family, and that they were going to pay back £2.4 million that they used uh, of public money to refurbish Frogmore Cottage. I think you'd have to have said... What a woman. What an absolute marvel. What a tremendous decision-making process the Queen is actually running. And many people have said this before, but I said it first. Basically, she should have been doing the Brexit negotiations. We'd have been out two years ago. Let's talk to Robert Jobson, who is, of course, royal editor of the Evening Standard, royal author of many books as well uh, about the family. Robert, very good morning to you. Morning, Mike. Yeah, so, uh, Saturday night, how did it come about? Was it the case that one newspaper got a hold of some news that they thought they would break exclusively and then the palace acted? No, I don't think so. I think the reality is, uh, as we wrote in the Standard on Friday, it was always imminent. I think it was due to come out on Friday night, but there were still some sticking points. Um, and then they, because it was unusual to come out on a Saturday, we were all on a conference call around about 6 o'clock, the correspondence and the uh, news was embarked to 6.30. So, yeah. no, I think basically they'd come to the conclusions. They just wanted to iron out a few details, that was all. Yeah, and people have been sort of arguing uh, over the course of the weekend on social media and elsewhere that, you know, they've got everything they've wanted, you know, they don't have to really worry about anything in the future. They have definitely not got what they've wanted, have they? Well, far from it. I mean, Harry was at an event at the Ivy at Chelsea last night for the Centre Bali and was said that he basically wanted to carry on and serving the Queen, but he was told he couldn't. So, yeah, he wasn't given um, that option, in other words. He wasn't given the option. I mean, the Queen didn't really have a, an option. She has to wear two hats. One of them's a crown. As a as a grandmother, I'm sure she would have been trying to accommodate them, even though they'd been quite very rude to her by you know, not allowing... Um, by defying her, really, by making the announcement when she expressly asked him not to. Yes. Um, but I think as a Queen, for the sake of the monarchy, you've got to be quite ruthless, really. I mean, the bottom, bottom line here is they, they wanted, I know, that, I hate that, but, you know, the old cake and eat it expression, but they mm. did. They wanted to do, they would have been half in, half out, and the Queen has been very clear. You can't be half in, half out. You're either right. working or you're not. So what does this mean for what they can now do in the future? Because we've been told that they can still be referred to as the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, however, no more HRH. They can presumably keep the name Sussex Royal, can they? Well, that hasn't really been answered by Buckingham Palace. The question was put, it hasn't been answered. Um, I don't see how the they moment, can, really. Well, it's, it's, they've been quite clear that they're not allowed to trade off their royal titles, but the very existence of Sussex Royal mm. um, actually suggests they are. So yeah. all of these arrangements aren't supposed to come in until the spring, which I suppose is March, um, and that's, I suppose, still part of the negotiations that are going on. But the reality... The reality is, they've been very clear here, you, you can keep your, your title Duke of Sussex and you can, you're still a prince, but you can't, um, you're not allowed to use H or H or trade of the, from the, of the royal title. So, um, 
I, I think they've got an issue over Sussex Royal. I think it'll have to. I personally think that people won't stomach it. No, I don't think they will. I mean, as I said to you last time we had a conversation, there's an awful lot of people in this country, certainly, who are not very keen on the way this has all been played out by Harry and Meghan, who would not necessarily want to suddenly rush to any website of theirs and buy stuff which is associated with them. I think it's very self-indulgent and dangerous for the monarchy going forward. If you've got people saying that they don't want to do the job, they don't want to do their duty, then people start questioning the whole institution. It's an unelected institution. It relies upon the goodwill of the people to exist. And, you know, I think everybody has got great respect for the Queen and the Prince of Wales, actually. But I think that a lot of people are looking at this and saying, well, Meghan Markle, a lot of money was spent, public money on the security for that royal wedding. It was a big pomp and circumstance yeah. and what was it all about it's made us look a little bit it's slightly embarrassing and all of that grandeur and pomp and everything was going on and all the talk that was going on around the wedding and how they were talking about how they're going to serve the country and really want to push ahead again harry saying that again last night saying he wish he could but you know the point of it is you can't do you can't do it the way no. that they want to do it and people will be very upset in my opinion that they're using their royal connections to make money. Yeah. And, um, you know, they're there to serve. They're not there to make... Well, let's face it. I mean, Meghan Markle was pretty much a nobody before she came anywhere near Prince Harry. You know, she was so much in need of an introduction to sort of fame that she had an interview with Piers Morgan. Not him interviewing her, but her interviewing him, asking him for help in how uh, she could get on in the PR world and who she should talk to. So yeah, and, was... and, and other showbiz reporters around yeah. And she's been... Very damning about Fleet Street. And Fleet Street actually has been extremely. Um, I, I don't think there's been any um, racism. I don't of course think not. there's been an overhounding. I think they're using that because it's an easy way, to, that's an easy um, thing to do to attack the media and say they're running away because of the media. The reality is, you know, I was around as we did 30 years ago in the. And, the, you know, the treatment of Princess Diana was completely different yeah. to the paparazzi with disgrace and, you know, led to the, the, the tragedy, without any doubt, mm. were involved in, the, in her death, in yeah. my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. But the, re the reality here is it's no, nothing of the sort with the, the, this couple. And I, I do have a little bit of sympathy for them. I, you know, I, I, with any young couple, I'd say, look, OK, you're probably struggling in, in, with what's, with going, maybe what's going on in your life. Yeah. But don't blame other people for that. But we well, live I'm in sure this world now, Robert, don't we? We live in this world now where, you know, if people have some kind of problem, they blame everything else around them. They say that they're suffering from some form uh, of mental health issue. Uh, yeah. They say that they need help. They say, you know, and I'm afraid there will be people on this day today, Blue Monday, listening to this, tele uh, this radio show, watching it on YouTube, and knowing themselves that they've got is issues, knowing themselves maybe that they've got depression, knowing themselves that they've got problems. But I tell you what, you know, the idea that they have milked this to the point where people are actually turning on them is extraordinary. It is extraordinary. I thought that when I was in Africa, when Harry said that sometimes he struggles to get out of bed in the morning, he worries so much about the world. I think that, that you know, you've got to look at the real reality here. They're both very, very rich people yes. that are now wanting to go on to trade on their rich and wealthy associations with an institution that's actually here to serve the public, not, as I say, for other, put them to make money from the public. And it's not now, just that, that, that they're wealthy people. They're not very young either. I mean, Harry's 36, isn't he? He's 35 and, and Meghan's nearly so yeah. 38. So, no, they are adults. And the fact here is that they, they're saying that they, they you know, struggle to get out of bed in them. And they've got several million pounds each to end the struggle yeah. anyway at all. The father has been... Uh, Prince Charles has been supporting them from his own... 
private income. Yes. Bottom line here is, is, is that there are people that get up in the morning at 5 o'clock every morning to go to work, to pay the, the rent, to pay the, the, the food on the table. Yeah. And they aren't going to sit there and stomach paying, you know, they, I think they're paying out for security and things like this for this couple that basically don't want to do the job yeah, anymore. Right. If, if you and I, Terrence, or any person, you know, I, don't, you know I, I think I'm blessed to do the, the work I do, but, you know, somebody has to work in a factory every day says, oh, I don't want to go in anymore. Well, you know what happens yeah. they're sacked and they have no more money. Well, that's the and thing. So the and end, the, idea also, the idea also that they don't actually have to get up in the morning. You know, if they didn't get out of bed, nobody would care. And the bottom line is, is that when I learned about how many people they had at Frogmore Cottage, you know, they call it a cottage. It's actually a mansion. It's got 10 bedrooms. It spent, uh, had, had £2.4 million spent on it. They're going to give that back. I'm, I'm going to ask you in a minute how they're going to give that back. But, you know, they had six permanent staff. They had about another six occasional staff who were let go, as we learned last week. You know, you're talking about people who didn't ever have to do anything for themselves. Well, yeah, I mean, it, you know, it is, it is different. Obviously, something's going on in their lives that maybe all of us don't know about. And and I think the Queen has quite clearly left the door open um, to, to Harry and to Meghan if they, you know, they come round and maybe they, there's a chance that they want to come back. I think people will be very, very... I don't think we want them back, do we? ...to happen. And I think they'll be reluctant to allow that to happen. But the, 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 the truth is here is that this couple are very, very privileged. They've got, um, they've had the support of the Queen and Prince Charles, um, both financially, and they've been welcomed by, I think, the people of this country. And actually, to go on about how he loves this country last night, that he did, um, and then said, but I'm going to go and spend most of my time in Canada. You know, he's just had a really jolly holiday for six weeks. Mm. It's, it's, it's quite cheap, actually. And um, I don't think people are, are going to be that sympathetic. And in fact, you can see they're not that sympathetic. There's, no, people, there's very few people in this country sympathetic at all now. Because, because you know, at the end of the day, it's going to come down to money as well. And, and if the security is going to carry on being paid for by, by the, the general public... They're going to wonder what's going on. And that's what this 2.4 million is a smart move to pay it back. They absolutely should pay it back. Yes. But, it, but this money is from the sovereign grant, which the Queen, as the Queen, is obliged to. All these properties that are owned by the, the Crown, she is obliged, obliged to keep them up to scratch. Yeah. You know, and that's part of her job. So this money is not going to go to a hospital or to a school. Is two point four million pounds. Although I personally think it should, yeah. it's going to go back into a pot where it's probably going to be spent on another royal property um, that needs upkeep. Now that's mm. the prerogative of the Queen, and that's also what she has to do. She's obliged by by charter to do that. That's one of her roles. But you know that that money really—it's a lot of money to have been spent just been spent on, on a couple that seems to suggest they've been treated badly. Yes, no, quite. And what about the uh, Prince Charles money? Because a lot of people have been asking me over the weekend, and, and you'll know the answer to this, the Duchy of Cornwall money is said to not be used for giving them anything. Is that the case? Is it going to come from a separate well, fund of Charles? Been, it, it has been, been used to give them money. I mean, the bottom line is that the Prince of Wales, as the, the, uh, as the Duke of Cornwall, as the heir to the throne, this is a, a private... Landed trust, and I know some Republicans say it's not private, it belongs to Crown. Actually, it was established in the 1370s to make the heir to the throne separate from yeah. the Crown. So it funds Prince Charles, and, and he runs that estate, and he's very active. There was a documentary on it, very interesting, quite recently. And, and there's profits from that estate that he, he can spend on whatever he wants. Right. I mean, the fact that the Prince of Wales spends it on um, public duties and his, and his 
children's public duties, which means the taxpayer isn't actually paying, hasn't been paying for them apart from security. Now, yes. the two and a half million pounds that he's been giving them um, up until now, apparently it was a lot more than that, um, he also has been paying money out of his private investments as well. Now, that, I understand going forward that he's going to be, continue to support them, not with a blank cheque, but support them with money from his private investments, not from the Dutch right. at all. OK. Uh, but the problem is, is as, as all of these stories always do, a lot more focus has now been put on all of the royals' finances, hasn't Yeah, they'll it? hate and, They'll and, hate that. And so now people are starting to ask me questions like, why doesn't Prince Charles pay any tax on the monies he makes from the Duchy of Cornwall? Because he should. Well, he does put... He, volunteers on, he voluntarily pays tax on the profit that he gets That's good of him. from the... Yeah, but he, 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 didn't, he doesn't have to by law. No, I know, but I mean, I do, though. So why, what makes him different? I know, but it's just... <laughs> a, what makes him different is it's a landed trust established years ago, yeah. over the rules years ago. But he, unlike previous Dukes of Cornwall... He does pay the, the, the tax on that, or volunteers. I was under, the, I was under the impression pay, he doesn't pay corporation tax on it. No, that's right. He pays volunteers to pay tax on the profits that he gets annually, but he doesn't as pay corporation tax because the Duchy of Cornwall isn't a corporation. No, I get that. But it still doesn't feel right to me, and it still doesn't feel right to an awful lot of people who, are, particularly at this that's time right. of year, are struggling with warning letters from HMRC saying if you don't pay us by the end of the month, yeah, well, you're going to have to pay a penalty, you know? Precisely. But I think that in this case, I mean, you're right, all that this is done is focused a lot more attention um, which on, on the financing of the royal family. I know that the Prince Royals, personally, I know, um, wants to reduce the size of the royal family and reduce the public money mm. that he's spent on the royal family. That's his objective. And when he's king, I think you'll see... Shall I say, easily put it, there's a lot less people on that balcony. Yeah, right. And what do you think is likely to be the sort of future for, for Harry and Meghan in terms of what they can do? I mean, the Mail today's got Duke and Duchess of Netflix. You know, they could do a production company number like Prince Edward did, I suppose. Um, you know, they, they, they could certainly make money somewhere, but they're, they're going to have to be kind of careful about which way they go, aren't they? Yeah, there's going to be a review of all this in a year's time by the Queen, Charles and William. But what I think once you've let the um, let them loose, um, it's going to be very difficult to pull them in, and, mm. and we don't know the, the nature of this relationship. You know, if they're going to stay together, what happens if Harry and Meghan split? You know, does Meghan carry on trading under uh, the, the Sussex title? Who yeah. knows? I mean, we just don't know what the future right. holds. And when you know, when yeah, when when is the Queen there. liable to see Baby Archie again? I mean, will Prince Philip see Baby Archie? You know, it, be, before uh, the end of the year, or if he can, if he lives longer than that, probably you know, not. Will he, will he ever see the made, baby again? Probably not. The Queen doesn't do long haul over no. travel, and unless they bring the baby back to an event that is inv they're invited to um, by the Queen, then it's very unlikely they will. Mm. So, I mean, there's a lot of there's an obviously a lot of sadness about on this, but there's also the sense that before all this happened, you know, before it became public. Um, you know, they were effectively holding the gun to the Queen's head, yeah. saying, unless we get what we want. And they published that website, which had an awful lot of things on it that were completely wrong yeah. and, um, and actually quite controversial. And a lot of it hasn't had to come down. Personally, I think that the whole Sussex Royal thing needs to come down. I yeah. need to scrap the idea of Sussex trading on the word royal, because you're not allowed to do right. that. You know, the trading exactly. standards, if you and I set up, you know, Mike and Rob Royal, right. um, we'd be told by the Lord James' office to take it down. Right. Now, um, 
you know, they're not being told to take it on them, but I think they're going to have to. I think that's one area where there's a mistake and they have to deal with it and say, call yourself Harry and Meghan Inc. But yeah. you cannot be called, you can't be called Sussex Royal. Sussex, Duke of Sussex title, by the way, is a very ancient title, only reserved for senior members of the royal mm. family. And, um, you know, there are a number of dukedoms that are allowed to be used by the royal family. That's one of them. It's a little cheap, isn't it? Really? Yeah, it really is. I wonder in a, if a year's time, once they review it, that disappears, as does the money for the security. Robert, as ever, thank you very much for your expertise. Robert Jobson there, Royal Editor at the Evening Standard, Royal Author as well, a man that knows uh, everything he needs to know and everything you need to know about the Royal Family. A mid-morning dance with the devil. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. With you here, of course, until one o'clock. We need your calls on this show because we want to hear the voice of reason and much of that comes from you. 0344 499 1000 uh, is the number. You can watch us on YouTube as well. Uh, you can contribute your comments there. Also, you can tweet us at Talk Radio at uh, IROMG and you can text us as well at 87222. Start your text with the word talk. Lots of you uh, are doing so. Many of you have got lots to say about Meghan and Harry, of course. Uh, I totally agree with caller nine. Nigel says Abby Cat. No title, no website mentioning Royal or Sussex. The Royal family should have made that clear immediately. Also agree they should use investments from their own money to live on. Well, I think that's absolutely right. Uh, what do you think would happen if the British public booed or shunned Harry, says Rick, when he attempts to carry out one of these part-time Royal events? The British are showing their teeth these days successfully. I think it would finish him off. I think you're absolutely right. You know, there's no doubt that Harry uh, is in some way uh, convinced himself that he's a vulnerable individual, that he's somehow frail uh, and uh, has a difficulty uh, in doing the job that he was born to do, despite the fact that many would say uh, it's hardly very taxing to be paid millions and millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of pounds to just go and help people. He's turned his back on the military, which a lot of people are very surprised about. And I think, quite frankly, uh, people are sick to death of all the whining. Because, you know, when plenty of us have got things to whine about, plenty of us have got struggles in life, but most of us carry on with them uh, and just get on with it, because that's what you have to do. When you're privileged, like Harry, uh, you can talk about it so the cows come home uh, and tell everybody how awful your life is, despite the fact you've got 30 million in the bank. Well, I'm sorry. I don't feel very sorry for you. Let's talk to Professor John Oxford, because I'll tell you who you should be feeling sorry for is anybody who picks up this SARS-like virus, which has already killed two people in China, uh, has already travelled to Japan, and apparently uh, people are being screened for it in the United States of America. But guess what? In this country... Nobody is being screened for it coming in at any airport, which seems mad to me. Uh, Professor Oxford, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Yes, good morning, Mike. Thanks very much for, uh, for, for, for joining us. Now, it seems to me that if an American airport is screening for this kind of disease which travels um, around the globe because people carry it into other countries, it would make perfect sense for us to do so as well, wouldn't it? No, not necessarily. I mean, you know, we are free of the Americans as regards decisions about public health and indeed everything else. And I think here, more recently in the last few years, the decisions made by the public health England are very much based on fact. And the fact is that when this outbreak, this SARS virus, I mean, as you say, it's a nasty affair. We, no one wants to get it. But in the last big outbreak, which is 2003, yeah. I mean, everyone was thinking, well, let's stop, let's stop air travel, full stop. But that was a disaster to try and stop it because you almost had... Well, you can't, problem. can you? 
No, you can't. But it was only realised then with that outbreak that you just couldn't because you'd ruin the economy of any country. But then the next stage was, well, they'll start checking people's temperatures. But they tested, I think, a million temperature, a million people going through. Not one case of SARS was picked up at one of these screenings. So they look okay. They satisfy public. They satisfy the public. Everyone feels a bit relaxed. But they actually, they're not doing very much, to be frank about it. Okay. There so are, you're there saying there's no point in, in, in actually screening people coming from China from where that disease actually is? No, not at the moment. I mean, you know, it's such a small outbreak. I mean, in, in, in that massive side population, even in Wuhan, it was 8 million people. Yeah. You know, they've got 40, 50, 60, maybe 100 cases. Very, very, very small numbers indeed. We have to keep a context here. Sure. And the chance of one of them getting on a plane coming to London is possible. So we might get one case or a couple of cases. Um, not more than that at the moment. Mm. I'm sure we're all, everyone's keeping awake. We're not, we're not well, people don't like... Sleep. When you talk about mystery viruses and things that can kill you, people start to get a bit nervous, probably quite rightly. Yes, but remember, there are viruses moving in England at the moment. I mean, influenza will probably be killing people, and well, it's yeah. killing people in England at the moment. There are probably 30,000 people infected with influenza. So it's in that context, and even more in Wuhan, in China. So it's in the context of the background of infection in mm. the community. You have to view this. Now, I know it's new, and I know everyone's frightened of something new and wondering what it's going to turn into. But I tell you, I'm not alarmed about it. I do not see a virus from this family, this coronavirus family, turning into a world beater, zooming around the world and all that. I just do not see it. No. I must admit, whenever we've been told that there's going to be some ghastly, you know, terrible, creeping illness is going to kill half the planet, it generally doesn't work out that way. No, that, that, that I think, unfortunately, is the case. Maybe we're partly to blame for it because I'm a virologist and there's something new, a little terribly exciting yes. new virus. And, 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 and it kind well, of to be fair, I mean, it is normally medical people who tell us about all these things and, and tell us that we should be wary of them. So you can't really blame people for being wary of them. No, but on the other hand, just look on the positive side of it. When, I'll tell you what did happen with the SARS. When we realised... The first thing we realised with SARS is that a respiratory virus could be spread by touch. Mm. We didn't really appreciate it, I don't think, heavily until the SARS. And then we realised that people on, on one floor of a hotel, the Metropole Hotel, they were all on floor nine. They always pressed button nine on the lift. They all picked up the virus from the lift button. Right. So then we realised that you know, simple things like washing surfaces with hot water and soap could kill this SARS virus, and it'll kill the Wuhan virus as well. So... Basic hygiene and cleanliness can kill it. That's one thing we realised. We did also realise that all this intervention that came with SARS, like hygiene level, increasing levels of hygiene, making sure we're social distancing, that is not walking to people's homes who've already got it, keep away from people who were coughing. Um, there was a reduction in other infections in the community while we raised our hygiene mm. level for those weeks. To, and I think that's what's going to happen. There'll be some positive things about this, apart from stopping this virus right. in, in China. We'll all increase our hygiene a bit, and that won't do any harm. And do you think that there's people who will be more likely to be at risk from this particular virus, or is it so yes. far removed from, from, yeah. from us at the moment that we shouldn't worry yeah. at all? Yes, no, dead right. I think, I mean, for example, uh, if I were going to Wuhan tomorrow, I had the ticket, I would go. You know, so what, 8 million people there. What I would not do... What would you go there to do? What's in Wuhan? Well, I, was, I was going to give a lecture there. Or right. I just, no, I'm just a, just a very yeah. boring question. I just I don't know much about Wuhan, so I'm not quite no, much no, sure no, why I no. would go there. No, no, nor, <laughs> nor do I, really. Um, but say, say I was, I wouldn't cancel the ticket. I wouldn't start thinking, oh, God, I'm going right. to pick up this new one. I just wouldn't. I would keep away from the 
uh, food market where the outbreak started. Yes. That makes sense. I would keep away from any accident to an emergency department mm. or the hospital because their cases would come in. Um, and that would be it, really. I would, I would do some increased hygiene there. I have maybe some alcohol wipes in my pocket. Yeah. Keep, keep reasonably... Wear a mask, maybe? No, I don't think I do that. Um, there's not much evidence, again, you see, of these masks stopping virus. Well, in fact, quite the reverse. I've been told that if you wear one of those masks, which is your, your, the basic ones that you see people walking around wearing in London, it's actually a, a, a sort of a, a magnet for, the, for any, any germs because the germs stick in the mask. Yes, it could be, but it was certainly the other way round. If you're already infected with a common cold or possibly even this virus, um, it would kind of, and you begin to cough a little bit, it would restrict your cough and so maybe restrict the spread from you to someone else. Mm. But I think there's precious little evidence. And we've done, my, my own laboratories, I'm quite a lot of work on seeing if common or garden masks will stop people getting infected with something like flu. And there's precious little evidence that they will. So again, it looks okay, though it would look startling in London, but it looks OK in, in Southeast Asia, but they're not doing much good as regards infection, preventing it or otherwise. OK. Professor John Oxford, Professor of Virology at Queen Mary University, uh, putting to bed any worries that you may or may not have had about going to uh, Wanhu, is it? Uh, or going to China in some respect because of this respiratory disease which is uh, taking hold uh, in part. Wuhan, I think, sorry it's called. Um, the bottom line for me uh, is that some medical people that tell us about these things and now they're telling us not to worry. But surely if the American airports are screening for the for virus, we should be doing the same, shouldn't we? Seems to make sense. Now, I've got a little bit of breaking news for you here. Apparently, Tony Hall, the director general of the BBC, uh, has announced that he's going to step down. It's all the rage, this stepping down. Because maybe I should step down or step back or step forward. Or, or, or they're all nodding behind the glass, swines. You're good. I mean, you know... Tony Hall's resigned from the BBC. That's a good start. Trouble is, there's another three million of them working there. Why don't they all resign as well? This is Talk Radio. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, there's been an awful lot of talk about the House of Lords. One of the things that people object to, I think, the most is that there are too many people in it. Over 800 peers now, uh, ever since it was reformed the last time around by Prime Minister Tony Blair, who did away pretty much with the hereditary peers idea, which I don't think was a bad idea at all, um, and in fact replaced it with patronage. And patronage is never as good, in my view, as an election. So, let's talk to Lord Charlie Fulton, a good friend of this show, Formerly uh, called me a disgrace, but I'm sure he doesn't agree with that now. Lord Charlie, very good morning to you. 
We'll have to see, Mike, won't we? <laughs> we will indeed. Now, you were uh, part of the reform of the House of Lords back in the day when you were in Tony Blair's government, and I think a lot of people thought that was a good idea at the time, you know, to remove many of the old duffers that sort of sat there just because their dad and their granddad used to go there. But it does seem to have got a bit out of hand, doesn't it? Well, nothing's really happened since most of the hereditaries were removed, and it's time, as you say... <coughs> to try and replace it with a democratically elected house. Yes, because I mean, surely when you look at places like India and you see how few representatives they have in Congress and you look at, at the Senate in America and how many people they represent with just two senators from every state, it does, you know, when you've got a, approximately something like, what, 1,500 uh, uh, representatives in the Houses of Parliament altogether for quite a small country, it's way too many, isn't it? It's way too many. It, it, what you said about patronage is right. You, you can't have a House of Lords that's appointed by the Prime Minister as and when he wants to, as it were, reward his friends. Yes. You need to have an elected House, which is the second chamber, and you also need it to be representative of the, all of the countries of the United Kingdom. The problem, though, is not the House of Lords, it's the House of Commons. They will not ever agree over the last 20 years to changing it to an elected second chamber because they are worried that if there's an elected second chamber why should the commons be prime? Yes, that's interesting actually isn't it because also I suppose there might be some and I'm not suggesting that they're in any way self-serving who would like to end up there so they don't like the idea of doing away with somewhere where they might quite happily retire for a few years Well I wouldn't go that far but every time since 1968 there's been a really serious attempt to try to reform the House of Lords, it founders not in the House of Lords, it founders in the House of Commons. Yeah and the reason it does is because everything in our politics at the moment is completely focused on the House of Commons. Yeah. Uh, all the great battles, the Prime Minister comes from the House of Commons, they decide everything. And rightly so, because we in the House of Lords cannot say no on important issues to the elected first mm. chamber. If you had two elected chambers, you would then have a situation where it would be like, to some extent, the United States of America, where you can get gridlock. Yes. People want that. I don't know. Yeah, that's interesting. Is there a sort of constitutional mechanism where you can have a second chamber which is somehow not quite as powerful as the House of Commons, but is still a checking balance system on it? One way of doing that would be to have, say, two-thirds of the House of Lords elected, but a third appointed. Right. If you had a third appointed, it would make the House of Lords less democratically impressive than the House of Commons. Mm. And therefore, the House of Commons would retain its primacy. One of the problems about gridlock was demonstrated over the last three years. I don't get the sense, uh, and I may be wrong, but I'm only judging it by the results of the last election. I don't think the public liked the idea of the Commons squabbling day after day after no. day. Well, I mean, I don't think anybody did. I mean, we all got thoroughly fed up with it. I mean, some of us actually went mad. Um, I'm luckily not one of them, but, you know, there are some Mike, you're people... A, you're a very, whatever your faults may be, you're very sane. <laughs> well, I have, to, the... I have to say, a lot of people did seem to become slightly deranged during that whole uh, process last year. Yeah, and if you, if you look at America, which is the classic place where the Senate and the House of Representatives can, can you know, uh, be in different places... Can we? Just, can I just? Your 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 phone has just suddenly gone very strangely faint. Can sorry. We just, sorry, there you go. That's better. Is, is that better? Sorry. Yes, that is. Yeah. Um, in in America, because the House of Representatives and the Senate have to agree on every piece of legislation, if they don't agree, nothing ever gets done. Right. And that is, I do not think, the public want that here. 
So I think what we should be aiming for is something that makes it clear that the Lords is the second. Yes. Second, Damon has to give way to the Commons. And I think maybe some element of appointed but primarily elected would be the way uh, to do that. But the people you've got to persuade are not the Lords, it's the Commons. And you've got to make them be willing to take the risk. And they have since 1968 where there's always been these sort of extraordinary alliances between far left and far right in the Commons who've tried to stop change taking place. And I think we need change now. Yes, I think there's no doubt that we've reached that point where reform has to happen, even if it's just to reduce the number of people there. And maybe that's where we come in with this suggestion of moving it to the north of England. I find it quite ironic that that politicians in London have suddenly discovered that there are people in the north of England that they need to talk to. Yeah, and I mean, I, I mean, I think people will be quite cynical about that. And why is it that they've suddenly discovered that there are people who live outside London? Because the result of the general election in 2019 was in effect determined yeah. by a huge number of Labour seats going to the Tories for the first time. Right. And now everybody's going to court those seats, it seems to me. Yeah, but I mean, is courting those seats um, wise if all you're going to do is send them a load of lords from London who will probably not live there and will probably commute there and may end up costing us more money than they do already? Well, I agree with the implication of your question, which is if all that London does to try and, as it were, give something the non-London parts of the country send 800 unelected lords to York. That would be a very, very poor result or response to the general election. I think you need to reform the lords first, then decide where it's going to sit. I've got no problem with it sitting outside London, and I think it should sit outside London. Why shouldn't it sit in Scotland? Well, I mean, you might get an argument from Nicola Sturgeon about that, I suppose. She would say that, you know, we are not not part of it. (laughs) But but we are... Scotland is part of the United Kingdom, and Scotland voted to remain in the United Kingdom in 2014. Yes. The idea that we should treat Scotland as half in and half out is not a good idea at all, I think. No, I think we should just put the Queen in charge of all future negotiations with Scotland uh, because she's done such a great job making sure that Meghan and Harry did not destroy the royal family. Uh, And she seems to have an idea uh, of what she's doing much more clear than anybody else has in politics. Indeed, and uh, I mean, the the whole of that um, resolution of of Prince Harry and Meghan's position was the result of having a leader, namely the Queen, who absolutely everybody respects. Absolutely. Nobody wants to... Nobody wants to do something different from what the leader wants. If you respect the leader, it makes a huge difference. Yes, quite. Now, the only voices I hear against the second chamber being elected is that they say people would not want to have so many elections that they would literally, you know, lose the will to live. But I presume that you could do it on the same basis as a general election. Whenever there's a general election, then you uh, elect the Lords. You could do it the same day. Yeah. Uh, you could on the same ballot before. paper. Exactly. So, or probably a different ballot paper, but that's a very minor detail. I don't think, I don't think people would, if given the, do you want to keep on having an entirely appointed House of Lords or do you want to have an elected second chamber? I think we're too bored with having elections would not be what people would say was the answer to that problem. Yes, quite. And um, I, I like your idea of having some um, sort of, um, you know, appointed members of the House, of the second chamber, whatever it's called, because you could yeah. then invoke the kind of expertise argument as well, couldn't you, where you could have certain people from certain walks of life, perhaps? Yeah, because the, I think the position in relation to the Lords at the moment is it's undemocratic. It needs fundamentally to be changed. But I don't think people think that what the Lords does in relation to, for example, improving legislation is necessarily the wrong thing. It's quite a good thing that from time to time the Lords can say to the Commons when they produce 
unthought-out legislation. Look, have you thought about changing this or mm. that? And the people in the Lords have got real experience of being um, uh, head teachers, being senior doctors, being people who've had the job of actually delivering policy change on the ground. That's not a bad group of people as far as making change is concerned. But it's not good enough just to have a, have a, a body of experts. You need somebody whom the public have control over. Right. And that's what you don't have at the moment. Yeah, I mean, because the thing is, it will be ironic, I suppose, will it not, if it, John Burko not only is the reason why the House of Lords is abolished, but, but in fact uh, uh, his final sort of payoff to uh, the parliamentary process is that, you know, his, his role as Mr Speaker uh, was seen as so divisive um, that he's not allowed to go into the House of Lords. As I don't know if he'd be the first speaker that doesn't get up there. Well, I mean, it looks from the uh, papers over the weekend that he will get there because he's going to be nominated by the Labour Party to go to the Lords. And I think it's right in the current system that he does go because the speaker is supposed to be independent of everybody. And if the position is that the government can say to the speaker, if you don't play your cards right, by which I mean supporting the government... Mm in big issues of procedure in the Commons, we won't give you a peerage. That is undermining his independence quite severely. And I think uh, them not giving Burkow a peerage, just like they're now talking about restricting the powers of the Supreme Court, makes me think they're very, very bad losers. Um, except they're not losers, they're winners, aren't they? They won in the general election, but they want to take their revenge on those people who, within the system, stood up for what those people thought was right. And I don't like the smell of that at all. No, I think there's a, there's a good argument to be made from what you've just said. However, I would say as well that John Burko did rather undermine his own independence by some of the things that he did, not least by having a bumper sticker, which made it very clear uh, what his thoughts were about Brexit. And, and as far as the Supreme Court is concerned, I know you're a, a legal expert, but, you know, the Supreme Court didn't exist before Tony Blair invented it. That's true, but... Uh, it had the same powers as the former final court of appeal, and you should trust the judges to set the rules. The judges are genuinely independent. From time to time, judges give decisions that people don't like. What people? Who well, there, but like there again, would you have advised Lady Hale to do what she did and say what yeah, she did? I, mean, I, I would. I would leave it to Lady Hale and the other ten members of the Supreme Court to say what the law is. And I don't like the idea of a government when it doesn't like a judgment from the court saying, OK, let's restrict those court's powers. It sounds to me like somebody wants not to be restricted by the law, and that is very bad. No, but you know as well as I do, because we've argued about this before, that the specific law in which the prorogation was deemed to be unlawful was kind of not really a law until they made it one. So, ever, you no, know, they... they... No, no court had ever faced the problem of a Prime Minister trying to close Parliament down for six weeks for no good reason. Yeah, but it was and for that, a good reason, so it had to, as it, it turned had out. To be well, it was for a bad reason, it turned out, because the reason they gave was we needed to write the Queen's... Oh, you're starting to sound more like a bad loser now, Charlie, for heaven's sake. Uh, well, in that one, I won, because the Supreme Court won, uh, held in favour of the argument... Sorry, I thought it was a legal decision, not an actual football match. It wasn't. You're right. You're absolutely right <laughs> in relation to that. But the key thing is don't change the rules after you've lost, because nobody will trust you to comply with the rules. The thing about the United Kingdom is that we're a country that plays by the rules not by what the government yes, thinks is but right. If you re, but, if, but if you reinvigorate the legal system by inventing a new place for people to go uh, and have c cases heard, then surely it's quite permissible to go back to the traditional way, which, it, which is the way it was before the European Union was around, in which case you make the House of Lords the highest court in the land again. 
But it had nothing to do with the European Union. And what happened in relation to the reform was they moved the final court of appeal from the House of Lords to the Supreme Court. Didn't change any of its powers. Yes, but what was the reason so for even, that? Even, even, so that there would be a visible court which people could visit and see. Well, you can visit the House of Lords, can't you? You can, but the number of people who could come and see the House of Lords sitting was about eight. I think it's absolutely right that where there's something as important as the prorogation case going on, it's absolutely open to the public and the press, as it was, in a way that the House of Lords Committee Room 1, which is where the final Court of Appeal used to sit, was not in practical terms. Right. Well, you make an imbr a brilliant case for everything, as of course you would, because you are an incredibly well-qualified lawyer. Let me ask you one final question, uh, Lord Charlie Faulkner. Who are you backing yeah. in the Labour uh, leadership race at this point? Or oh, have I you not decided? decided. I think the people who look like they're really doing well in this race are Keir Starmer and Lisa Nandy. Lisa Nandy, because she's actually raising issues about what's Labour got to do to recover those seats in the Midlands and the North that it lost, and Keir, because he's incredibly impressive. I see that the so, Newham Labour Party over the weekend called her a Zionist plant. Yeah, well, that's vile anti-Semitism. It is. And she'd be rooted out mm. as quickly as possible. And what about Jess Phillips asking uh, Keir Starmer to hand over the microphone to a woman? Well, I think that the Labour Party's got to decide who they want, and there's a lot of strong women candidates, and there's one male candidate. Choose on merit as to who's going to be best to help the country. OK. Lord Charlie Faulkner, thank you very much indeed. Uh, this is Talk Radio. Do you agree uh, with my Lord Faulkner, who thinks that uh, the House of Lords does need reform? Uh, I think it totally does need reform, but how do you do it uh, in such a way that the House of Commons agrees to do it, uh, whether it's elected, whether it's appointed, however it is done? Dangerous mid-morning debate with the great dictator. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good afternoon and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Not just now on Talk Radio, but live-streamed on uh, YouTube, live-streamed on Facebook, live-streamed on Twitter. We are coming at you from all sorts of different places, I can tell you. And we've still got lots to do between now and one o'clock when Matthew Wright is here. Right now we're going to cross live to Richard Tice, uh, chair of the Brexit Party, of course, because amongst other things, uh, we need to talk to him about HS2 because the review is due to be published very, very soon. Within weeks, we are told. I don't know what the hold-up is, but it's now said to, uh, to be going to costing us a around about 106 billion, which is sort of what we predicted about six months ago. Richard, uh, very warm welcome to you. Thank you for joining us this afternoon. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Mike. Well, indeed, um, you know, I've been predicting it would be over 100 billion for about 18 months. Yes, so right. No surprise to me at all. And the truth is that I think many people in the heart of hearts knew that that was where this could end up. And it's incredible to me that not yet a track, a single track has been laid. Various houses have been compulsory purchased. Some have been sold back. We've got the Woodland Trust complaining about the wiping out of wildlife and woodland up and down the country. And, and they said the last time I spoke to them, it looks as though somebody literally just took a map of Britain and drew a straight line where they thought the train line could go. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it really was. I know lots of farmers... Uh, south of Birmingham, who are either uh, on the line or uh, just, you know, uh, alongside it. And, I mean, you know, some of the stories about what's been going on and, and the waste of money, the waste of time, is mm. just extraordinary. You know, we're, we're just, um, we're not very good at these these mega projects. And, and the extraordinary thing is that you hear just in the press, you know, the uh, the big bosses of the construction companies you know, writing a joint letter to the Prime Minister saying it's got to go ahead, otherwise thousands of jobs are at risk. You know, um, 
generally always ignore, in my view, uh, the bleatings of the big bosses mm. of the biggest corporations, be they big national or, or multinational corporations, and actually focus on the gut instinct of the people. And, you know, the Brexit, Brexit Party's first major domestic policy was to free up 100 billion quid by scrapping HSE yeah. and investing it in oven-ready local rail and road projects that uh, would deliver within a much shorter time frame significant improvements for millions of people's daily commutes and lives uh, out in the regions. And actually, you know, uh, I feel that we've, we've shown real foresight. Yes. You know, no, I think you no, I think you absolutely have. Won, he's won a majority based on, uh, you know, new seats being won up in the north, promises to invest in infrastructure. And, you know, politically, there's a... There's a double win-win for the Conservatives here. Uh, he will win uh, massive plaudits in the home counties, in their traditional areas, if he scraps it, because it's very, very unpopular uh, in the constituencies between London and Birmingham. And he will win massive plaudits if in, in the regions, uh, you know, all across the north, you know, the horizontal projects, mm. um, uh, you know, like essentially what they sometimes call HS3, um, uh, you know, the uh, the east-west route from, from Liverpool to Manchester to Sheffield to Harlow, you know, all these areas. And where I stood in the constituency of Hartlepool, you know, the lack of infrastructure is, is a massive... Yes. Uh, well, we were talking about this. Fun, we, we were talking about this a bit earlier on, Richard. Funnily enough, because of the suggestion out there that the House of Lords could be moved to somewhere like York. We had a caller from York who said, "Do you know one of the problems that we have here is the, the transport infrastructure is so awful. One of the last buses out of York to one of the nearby sort of satellite towns goes at six o'clock at night. So you know, there's nowhere to. You can't after six o'clock. There is no bus. Yeah, and and, and you know this is this is the case uh, all across." chunks of the north and the suggestion from the construction bosses that you know um, there's no other oven ready schemes is simply not the case mm. there are lots the taxpayers alliance released a report march last year with 28 well considered oven ready schemes uh, with a value uh, sort of a, an estimated uh, construction cost of just under 50 billion quid and, uh, you know, that was what uh, that, that very much informed uh, our thinking. Mm. And I think it would actually be, you know, in business, Mike, there's a very simple expression. The first loss is always the best loss. And whatever they've spent, whether it's six, seven, eight billion so far, part of it they'll get back because actually it's owned in properties that have gone up in value. Um, and just because you've spent six or seven billion doesn't mean you need, therefore, you, you're committed to spending another hundred. Uh, you know, no, it's bonkers. And as and as you it's say, it's quite easy to do deals with the with the bosses of those construction companies and say, do you know what? Yes, we're cancelling that contract uh, to uh, to do X and Y uh, on HS2. But in return for which, we're basically going to uh, divert that money and that that, that allocation of resource uh, and, and and the related cost. Uh, to a different project, um, you know, building some some local infrastructure, and, yeah. and that sort of thing is 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 perfectly negotiable. It just requires a can-do attitude, but I think is there. I think you're absolutely right because, as you say, listening to Balfour BT and Morgan Sindel and Sir Robert McAlpin and all these big companies, I mean, they would say that, wouldn't they? Because there's an awful lot of money in it for them if the project goes ahead. Sure, but if you turn around to them and say, "I tell you what, folks, actually, you're going to get a one-to-one -one negotiation." Uh, which now, once we've left the European Union, you're able to do, because you're, you're free of EU procurement rules, you can say, 
yes, you've got a billion pound contract on HS2. Actually, we're going to redivert that. We're going to uh, negotiate with you a billion pound contract uh, to do a local scheme in XYZ region or town. Then actually, uh, you know, that's all there to be negotiated. And I think it's doable. I've, I've, I've no doubt about that whatsoever. Mm. And um, the, the real point, the real, the real winners out of that are local people in the regions who've been utterly starved of infrastructure investment for decades. Yeah, because not everybody wants to get from Birmingham to London. You know, lots of people want to go the other way. They want to go from Birmingham to Leeds or from Leeds to Newcastle or from Manchester to Leeds. You know, all the places where people work, um, which don't necessarily involve London. And you do get the impression, don't you, as well, that the only people in favour of this are the big construction companies, are the politicians. Not There's not really anybody kind of what I would call ordinary people who want it. And, and, and in a sense, the cities you've just mentioned are the cities that actually generally have done enormously well relative to all the towns, the surrounding towns around them. The towns that have been left behind, the Hartlepools, the Batleys, uh, you know, just there, there are hundreds of towns in the regions that have been completely starved investment, which is all poured into Birmingham, it's poured into Leeds, it's poured into Manchester. It's about time it poured into you know, Bolton, Wigan, Blackpool, Liverpool, all these, all, all these many other towns in the north, Hartlepool, uh, you know, Easington, Redcar, Middlesbrough, they've utterly been starved. And those are the areas that need 100 million here, 100 million there. Uh, you know, that, 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 that's my view. Yes. And um, it would, frankly, it would, uh, it would do um, the Conservative uh, government a huge, uh, you know, political win-win. But much more importantly... You know, it's it's decent, ordinary people who've been so let down. And that was, for me, that was the massive lesson, you know, I learned in Hartlepool. Mm. There's a great community that's been utterly starved of investment. And in fact, all the public money has been drained away from a town like that, as opposed to being invested in it. Un unbelievable. One final question for you, Richard. Uh, January 31st, looming large. Are we going to see some uh, Big Ben action or are you going to bring along just a, a recording, which would be probably just as good? Well, um, one thing is we're going to have a, we're going to have a celebration. It's going to be good fun. There's going to be lots of colour, enthusiasm, songs, some uplifting speeches. And yes, we're still working on, uh, you know, Big Ben hopefully bonging on the night. Um, uh, you know, because we, we have a can-do attitude, it's extraordinary that, um, you know, the bureaucratic blob in the Houses of Parliament is trying to prevent it. Uh, Marc Francois, the Tory MP, discovered that actually the true cost of, of making Big Ben bong on New Year's Eve was just over 14 grand. All of a sudden, that, that seems to balloon. <laughs> it, it, I mean, it's an absurd... It's, it's the final death rattle, is it not, of the sort of Romania parliament, where they're making well, out that something yeah, can't they, be done. Then they, they say, oh, no, it can be done, but no, it's too expensive. Oh, even if you get look, the money, it can't be done. Then we look to feeble. You know, we, we're looking to, to regain our place at the, the top table on the world stage, and yet we can't organise a bell to chime in a clock tower. I mean, it's pretty... You know, it's pretty embarrassing. But look, I'm hopeful we'll get over it. Plan B is, you know, we're gonna, we'll have a fantastic speaker system and the sound of Big Ben will still chime across the square. But, you know, we're still working on it. I'm still optimistic. My glass is always half full. Mike, it's never half full. Excellent stuff. Good stuff. Richard, thank you very much indeed. We'll no doubt see you on the night as well because uh, who knows what talk radio might be up to. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on talk radio. 
If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.